Ladies and gentlemen, let the tones of Nancy Sinatra open up before you like a delicate oriental lily. Am I allowed to say the word <laughs> oriental anymore? I don't know. But regardless, join us in Raven Bond as we discuss You Only Live Twice. And joining me, as usual, for a deep dive into this Bond retrospective is a man who's got nine lives. <laughs> it's Stuart Late. Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. Hopefully that will have timed out properly. I got really carried away then and forgot <laughs> that the name of this film in the song comes right at the start. So, yes. Yep. Welcome. It's not a bad, it's not a bad song, if we want to talk <laughs> about that straight away. Like, it's not a bad song. Beautiful uh, song. I one love of the, one of the better Bond themes. It's gorgeous. And apparently they offered it to Frank Sinatra first, and he said no. So they got Nancy, his daughter. Let, let, let me, one Sinatra is as good as another. It's also for Robbie Williams fans. It's the sample that he uses for Millennium. We got stars directing our fate. Da, 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 no? Oh, okay. Fair enough. No, 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 I, I, I remember that song. I love that song of Robbie Williams, and I realise it's mostly because of the Bond Mostly film, the Bond in, connection. In Robbie Williams' song, he's actually kind of dressed as James Bond. It's a bit of a pastiche, and he's got a jetpack oh, okay. at one point. And ah, well, there you go. It's a beautiful song, and it's lovely and delicate and charming and whimsical and dreamlike and I love it. It's one it of is. my I, I had heard the song before, but like I said last week, I haven't seen this movie before i realized yeah. this is one of this is one of the few bond films that i had actually never seen and i i immediately realized why uh they don't tend to replay this one on the television do they i assume that they have if they play a bond marathon that they play it i mean i i guess i certainly have never seen it uh on tv whereas i i see lots of the early the other early conneries even thunderball it is um, true that they don't TV. play it as much i think i suspect i know the reason okay <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, look, I was going to do other business up front, but I think... <laughs> well, no, no, no. Listen, well, we'll do we'll do other business, and then we can address the uh, elephant in the room, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the um, yellow-faced elephant in the room. Yes. Just saying, it's an interesting conversation. But I just wanted to uh, recap from last week's episode about Thunderball, mm. where we asked people if they had a good suggestion for a pun that James Bond could tell Domino as they got skyhooked into the air. Because the movie just ends, as you said, Stu. They just it get does, it and just finishes. There's no <laughs> Stu is still bitter. Uh, <laughs> because it's it's a it's a movie from the nineteen sixties, they had all the credits up front. So it just finishes. It's a hard done. You're done. That's it. That's it. Get out of the theatre. <laughs> No more Still, I'm baffled by that movie. Anyway. We'll have to do a rewatch of the rewatch. <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> another two hours, ten minutes. That's, that's another 12 hours of my life I'll never get back. We received a correspondence from one person on this challenge. We did. We had uh, someone call in. Someone called in. So I'm going to play the best I could get this correspondence into my computer system. The audio quality is not particularly fantastic, but I'm just going to play you. The submission that we got for this movie. So bear with me now. Here we go. Hello, Natalie and Stu. This is Sir Sean Connery speaking. My good friend Scott Driscoll gave me a call and asked me to give you a little bit of a heads up about some background information for the end of Thunderball. Now, Stu, I've listened to the podcast, and as you see, it is uh, quite a long film. 
Uh, but the, the line that was cut for time was, uh, as we lifted into the sky from the inflatable raft, I turn my head to Domino and I say, well, I guess we're hooking up now. And she turns back and laughs and says, I've always wanted to join the Mile High Club. Thank you. I really love the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Sir Sean Connery. Sir Sean Connery. I mean, you know, to grace us with his presence like that, it's it's an honour. Quite delightful. And uh, our thanks to Scott Driscoll for hooking us up with Sean yes. Connery. <laughs> Thank you, Scott, for getting Sean on the phone. It was amazing. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good submission. That's, that's very good. I do sort of feel that I don't know that Bond would be happy with Domino having the final sting. I feel like maybe swapping them around so he yes, could do yeah, the yeah. high club. Having said that, <laughs> Stu, we already know that Bond would most definitely already be a member of the My High Club. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I think he's... He's got one of those punch cards. It's like, you know, he's, he's five, a five, five, get, get one free. Uh, so, yeah, so that was our business from last week. So thank you very much. We now have You Only Live Twice. Not quite as long, but still long. Just a shade under two hours. This I, one rocketed along a bit, a bit more than the other one, I thought. I thought this was a bit better paced. Well, there's not so much underwater stuff, although still that's, underwater that's right. stuff. There is but, underwater stuff. I was I was very worried, Natalie. They start off with an underwater <laughs> sequence. I'm like, oh, no, we're not doing this again, are we? <laughs> It was okay. Well, they don't quite start off. There's there's bits. But I, I thought if, if we go through our one-minute challenge first yes. and get some of the inevitable out of the way, because I have <laughs> I, I do want to talk about the differences between the book and the film. And I haven't read the book, but I've been reading up on it. And this film wildly, more than any other book that has gone to screen so far in the franchise as we're re-watching it, it diverges very, very far away from the actual plot of You Only Live Twice, the novel. And I think in there we'll find some of the interesting tidbits. And there's just so much good trivia associated with this story and this film and the book, so I, I thought I'd regale you with some of that. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. This this Sizzle is a movie that feels like it has like about ten different stories like nestled within it, you know? <laughs> so, Stu, I'd like you to go first. As someone who had not seen this film, give me your minute challenge. <laughs> Okay, so um, I started off and, look, just ripped the Band-Aid off. Uh, Bond's turning Japanese. Oh, no. <laughs> I wrote down the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Jinx, I guess. Do you want to rip this Band-Aid off and just address it right up top and we can we can move on from there because... Tell me your thoughts. Look, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to minimize it. It's not a big deal for the movie. The movie treats this like it's completely normal that... <laughs> A Western uh, spy. Was it plastic surgery? I was a bit unclear. They were, they were a bit unclear as to what was actually going on. Were they, like, actually giving him plastic surgery? No, no. No. So it, it was, like, makeup. It was makeup and some special effects. So they added... Uh, but then he goes and, like, so, so they, they they make him up and then he goes and, like, sleeps in it? Like, I mean, wouldn't it get all mussed up? Like, I'm not even sure what... I don't know that Ian Fleming thought too much about the logistics of the prosthetics. <laughs> so this was in the book. This isn't this yes. isn't an addition. Yes. This is one of the, the few things. Well, one of the few things that they've, <laughs> they've thrown out everything else, but they've gone, you know what? The bit where he puts on yellow face, we've got to, we've got to include that. Well, do you know, did you notice who wrote... <laughs> the screenplay i did it was roald dahl beloved Welcome. beloved children's author one of my favorite authors <laughs> a very complicated man who was a An extremely complicated man so yes it does happen in the novel and it happens in a different way or for a different sort of slightly different purpose but it is the case that it is tanaka the head of the japanese secret service yes who orders him to do this 
right. to uh, blend in. Which so is it's just a, a disguise. Look, I don't want to labor the point too much. I don't want to go over the top. So we with should, it. And, and also, we, we are both, neither of us are of Asian background or of Japanese background specifically. So it's in many ways, it's kind of not our place to say. But I will just yeah. say it's real weird in 2020 <laughs> watching Sean Connery, beloved actor himself, a very complicated man, get done up like a Japanese man. And apparently, according to the filmmakers, that means like giving him like squinty eyes, bushy eyebrows and like a weird bowl cut and like darkening up his skin a bit. Like it's not full on Mickey Rooney in uh, in Breakfast at Tiffany's, but it, it's it's <laughs> on the spectrum. It's well, all it's we're, an, we're on our way there. He doesn't do an accent. He, he doesn't. No, no. I I I was terrified that he was going to start doing an accent, and I was like, oh, okay, right, fine. We're we're not going that far, but it's still pretty bad. So for me, again, not to minimise it, but. That's a problematic element to this film. And for those who are listening along and who haven't quite grasped what we're talking about as part of Bond's mission to uncover what's happening on an island off Japan where there's a rocket supposedly launching, but nobody can find out where they are. And of course, it turns out to be Blofeld's secret volcano lair. <laughs> the head of Which the I, Japanese, I definitely want to talk about. The head of the Japanese SIS says Bond to, to infiltrate there. It's a Japanese traditional fishing village you must turn Japanese, you must become Japanese, which requires him undergoing some strange prosthetics, a bowl-cut wig, and uh, taking a wife in a very overly long and complicated cultural ceremony. Taking a wife, and I'm not sure, again, it's one of these things that this movie does a number of different times. We're, we're, we're getting into it very early, but, I mean, I guess we can we can just talk about it. Who cares, right? Like, I mean, but, but Here's we, me going, let's go through our one-minute challenge. Point one, okay, stop everything. Point one, okay, stop everything. That's kind of what this movie does where it just has this thing in the middle of it that completely blows up the movie. Like, you, as soon as it happens, you're like, oh, no, you, you can't you can't excuse this. This isn't of its time. It is it is garbage. It's just it's like, oh, no, because there's there's like other things in this movie that's really cool. Like there's there's well, you didn't let me finish. For okay, me, sorry, yes. For me, the transformation into Japanese, and again, I'm not Asian. This is a con- construct that Fleming as the author and then Roald Dahl as the screenwriter took on board and everyone, yeah, the idea is Bond goes undercover in Japan so he has to look Japanese. Right. And I don't think that had the same uh, reaction or engenders the same reaction, um, certainly with a Western audience who was their primary audience, as it would now. Again, I'm saying of its time, but I do think people went, oh, yeah, that makes sense that you would have to look more Japanese if you were going to hide out in a Japanese fishing village. <laughs> but again, like, no. like you kind of... It's sort of it's, oh, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> please, please go, please go. To me, that was not <laughs> as horribly jarring as the sexism. And the, right. the, yes. the, the oh, oh, way I was going to mention the sexism. <laughs> so this is for me the way that Tanaka takes Bond home to get a massage and says men oh. come first and women come second and Bond says I might retire here and all the stuff about Japanese women being subservient subservient and oh and then when he was getting married to Kissy and Tanaka kept saying she had the face of a pig and Bond kept looking like a petulant schoolboy. <laughs> going oh, I've got yes. a marriage. he's got a face like a pig uh. did he understand that he's not actually getting married to this woman like that it's uh that it's part of the mission or was he thinking like I don't know I don't he's know he's acting as if he was genuinely being given a wife and he's like well I want her to be pretty yeah exactly like it's an imposition on him as a spy yeah. 
that his, his, <laughs> his undercover wife is, you know, not a looker. He's apparently not a looker. How yeah. can I be convincing in my portrayal of a happy new husband if my wife looks like a pig? And then she comes out and she's very pretty and Tanaka kind of gives him like a knowing smile and I guess it was just a funny joke he was playing? Like, I don't... <laughs> what the hell is going on? Or unless maybe the joke is that pigs are beautiful. <laughs> that that's a compliment. <laughs> you have a face like a pig, you're a beautiful woman because pigs are beautiful. I, I don't know. I don't remember studying that in my high school Japanese class. But <laughs> the, the thing is that stuff grated with me more. And I am not Asian, so it is quite possible that I am just looking from a female reactive perspective going what the fuck shut up right now and then the you know yellow facing is <sighs> it's not that i can justify it in my head it's just they didn't have q pop him on a table and go now 007 to look japanese we'll need to give you slanty eyes like prince philip would say and obviously i'm i'm being hyperbolic here i'm not actually trying to insult anyone but you know they didn't have this horrible scene of white people going this is what japanese people look like they actually did have japanese actors doing it now again right but all of the people involved in making this film were white yes (laughs) i get it I get it. I'm there. But to me, if it had been Q or a bunch of white people going, oh, this is how you look Japanese. Now go ingratiate yourself. Like, sure. It could have been. I, a- I understand what you're saying. I, I, I absolutely get what you're saying. But I think that would only make it a tiny bit worse than it already is, which is pretty bad. Yeah, and, that's fair. And, what, what what makes it doubly bad for me, and this is going to sound weird, but it's the fact that it doesn't actually have an effect on anything. Like the fact that he gets made up as a Japanese person, that they have an elaborate wedding ceremony. Who is that for? Like That's... who is watching that? Like they don't they don't show someone like surveilling them. Yeah. They just do this thing and then he goes into the house. He could have just hid in the house. And then left at nighttime, like he does anyway. There's not at any point, plot-wise, is there any reason for him to do this? So, maybe at this point I should tell you the original plot of You right. Only Live Twice. Okay. We, will, we will eventually get to our minute challenge, but clearly... Yes. No, no, we, we need to do this. We need to deal with this, and we, we, we need to lance this boil and then move on. I just love the fact that we had a conversation just before we hit record about how we're going to try and get through the minute challenge, and then we'll address it. <laughs> And we couldn't even stick to what we just agreed to. Look, there are, there are other things I want to talk about in this movie, but I feel like we need to, to address this. Okay. Not make a massive deal out of it, but like we just need to talk about it and then we so can we do other things. I'm, I'm going to try to summarise the plot of You Only Live Twice as, as quickly as I can. The novel. It's a bit batshit crazy. So <laughs> yes. what, what we need to understand is that there's something called the Blofeld Trilogy in Bond, and it starts with Thunderball, then does on Her Majesty's Secret Service and ends with You Only Live Twice. So You Only Live Twice was the the, the most recent novel. Yeah, I think it was the last novel Fleming wrote, or at least it was very close to the end. And it actually makes a bit of sense when you realise that, oh, Fleming kind of was near the end of his life or he he'd yeah. started having heart attacks. So things were not good. And it was written after uh, the movie had come out. So this is where we start getting Bond with a bit of a sense of humour and the Scottish background that's influenced oh, by... Oh, okay, right, 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 okay. But let's talk about plot. 
so, <laughs> I don't want to spoil on Her Majesty's Secret Service because obviously they've done it the other way around in the film franchise. Yes. But let's just say for various reasons, Bond starts the novel drinking, gambling, he's taking risks, he's making bad decisions while working. Sure. M gives him a last chance by sending him to a diplomatic branch of MI6. He's given a mission to convince Tiger Tanaka, the head of the Japanese intelligence service, to provide Britain with information from radio transmissions from the Soviet Union. And in exchange, the British Secret Service will give the Japanese access to one of their own information sources. So Bond gets introduced to Tanaka by Henderson, and I'll come back to him because it's an interesting mm-hmm. story there. But then it turns out the Japanese have already, they already know what's going on with the British information. So Bond has no leverage. So right. Tanaka says, well, I do have something you can do for me. I need you to kill Dr. Guntram Shatterhand. Now keep that name in your mind. I'll get back to that I, later. I would find it hard to drop that name. That's a hell um, of a name. <laughs> now, Dr. Shatterhand is living, he's rebuilt an ancient castle on the island of Kyushu by the sea and created a garden of death where people... Well, that sounds awesome. Yeah, so this is the thing. Keep in mind as I say this, why didn't they film this film this movie? But we'll talk about that later. So people go there. There's all the sorts of plants and poisons and whatnot, and people kill themselves. So this guy is running a garden of death where people are turning up and just killing themselves. Now, this is quite interesting when you consider that Japan is quite notorious now having a forest of where people kill themselves. Anyway, for, for narrative's sake, Tanaka wants this guy killed, shows him a picture, and Bond realizes that's Blofeld. Now Tanaka doesn't know this, so he says, right. "Yes, I'll take on this. I'll kill this guy for you because of past reasons why he wants to kill yes. Blofeld." So Tanaka says, "Okay, I'll train you up and make you up to look Japanese, and I'll get in to do this." Former Japanese film star Kissy Suzuki. Right. Okay. So she's a film star who obviously knows how to do hair and makeup. Yes. And Bond attempts to live and think as a mute Japanese coal miner in order to get into Shatterhand's castle. Right. So, so there's a there's a there's a subterfuge element to it. There's a subterfuge element that you know they're going to notice. He's a white guy, Blofeld. He's going to notice a white British man turning up to be a coal miner. Sure. He so would raise suspicions. Yeah. <laughs> now, after infiltrating the Garden of Death, I'm just I'm reading this from Wikipedia, but I'm trying to crib it. Blofeld is getting around his castle dressed as a samurai warrior. Okay, this sounds amazing. Yeah, he's getting around the place in a samurai armor, so none of the plants can like get on him and stuff. And also, I guess he's a bit crazy, but he's like, <laughs> yes, I am full on Tom Cruise last samurai action. And <laughs> Bond gets captured and he gets identified as Bond and then he and Blofeld have a duel. Uh, Blofeld, samurai swords? Blofeld has a sword and Bond has a wooden staff. Oh, okay. All right. Oh. Bond eventually kills Blofeld by strangling him with his bare hands in a fit of rage, then blows up the castle. But upon escaping, he suffers a head injury, leaving him an amnesiac living as a Japanese fisherman with Kissy Suzuki while the rest of him believes he's dead and his obituary appears in the newspapers. And that's why it's You Only Live Twice. Now, this is where it gets mega heavy, Stu, (laughs) because Bond starts getting better, but Kissy conceals his true identity because she's fallen in love with him and wants to keep him to herself. Right. He only has makeup on, though. Like, if he's an amnesiac, surely he understands that he's an English man. 
Well, he thinks he's a Japanese fisherman. He's he's that lost his memory. That is insane. That is completely so, insane. Stu, have you never watched The Young and the Restless? Have you never watched <laughs> Days of Our Lives? This is small fry, small fry. So she decides, I won't tell him who he is, and then he'll stay here with me because, Stu, because... James Bond has a magic dick. And what does a magic dick do? It gets chicks pregnant. Oh, wow. Is pregnant... And she is hoping that she'll be able to tell him that she's pregnant and he'll propose marriage. But then he reads a newspaper and starts seeing bits of pizzas of a newspaper, something about Russia. And he thinks maybe that's where my identity is. There's some reason I remember Russia. Bloody so Boston. the showdown with Blofeld is not the end of the book by a long it's shot. It's the midway point of the book. Jesus Christ. And- and so Bond says, I'm sorry, Kissy, I need to bugger off to Moscow or Vladivostok and figure out who I am. But the the point of the novel is kind of reflecting like decline. And apparently there's observations in it about the decline of British influence compared to the rise of the US and that sort of stuff. So there's all this right. stuff things putting in there about oh, like the, the Cold War was was really ramping up at that point. Like that's it, it, right. Yeah. yeah, and he's he's kind of reflecting, I guess, on his own life and his own, I don't know, misgivings, forgivings. The other thing that happened is that he went on a trip to Japan and he kind Ian, of... Ian Fleming did. Ian Fleming did. So Ian Fleming later in his life was a editor, like a newspaper editor, and he went to Japan and met up with a man called Henderson. Right, okay. Who is in the... Who I assume was a very similar figure to what we eventually see in the movie. Now, tell me, Stu, tell me, did you pick up an accent from Henderson at all? Uh, yeah. Oh, oh uh, I, I picked up an English accent. Is that what you mean? Oh, or? did you? Did you? Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny? Dicko Henderson is based on Richard Hughes, an Australian journalist. Oh, really? Okay, right. And I, I went back and rewatched. And if you go back and rewatch, I do think Charles Gray was trying for a bit more of that. A bit, bit strine. Yeah, a little bit strine. He's not quite as clipped as he is when he becomes Blofeld a couple yes, of minutes yes. time. Did you yeah, find that? That, was, that is very weird because I've I've seen Charles Gray as Blofeld, and you had warned me that like he's not Blofeld. Don't worry about it. But it's still weird. It's to see weird. him open the door with that that weird smile. God, his face yeah. is strange. Like, he opens that door with that weird smile, and you think, to a modern eye, you're almost like, oh, is this Blofeld, like, hiding in plain sight? Like, like he's waiting for, for Bond, yeah. you know? And it's like, no, no, he's, it's just, it's the same actor who would later play him. <laughs> it's just this yeah. weird thing, a weird symptom of how I watch these movies, the fact that I'm watching it in 2020 and not 1967 or whenever it came out, it's just a strange little artifact of this this weird scene between the two of them. Yes, so Richard Hughes, he sounds like quite a character. He was a journalist and he was a correspondent for a number of papers, including The Times, and that's how he met Fleming. He was his editor at one of the papers. I can't quite find that right now. But he was also a double agent. That's the legend, is that he fed information back to Britain, but he also had been tapped by Russia, like some Russian spies were like, hey, can we get some information from you? We'll make it worth your while. And he went, oh, maybe. And he, he rang Fleming, who rang MI6, and they said, okay, yeah, get him to do that and we'll feed them information. And he can act as a double agent. And so Hughes went back to the Russians and went, look, I'll do it for double. And they went, well, he must be serious. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so he spied for the British and then was a double agent. So uh, I keep quite... forgetting that like like Ian Fleming was actually literally a spy. Like he was he was the not to the Bond level, but he worked in intelligence for sure. Yeah, and so just... he had this network of roustabouts and, you know, <laughs> there's always something, and I say this a lot, there's always something about a lot of these places when you find white guys, particularly in Asia and the Pacific, mm-hmm. I feel like there's always an element of scoundrel about them. They're always people who are kind of drawn that's, to... That's often the best you can hope for. <laughs> well... Yes, I'm not talking about the the certain seedier elements, but I'm talking about people who become reporters or... Sure, you know, yeah, exactly, like, like raconteurs and adventurers. Trading and all those kinds of businesses, and there's always elements of scoundrel or they might have had a run-in with the law somewhere else, so they've left town and they've gone somewhere else where they won't be found, you know, particularly... L- L- London's too hot for me right now. That's right, and particularly in the, the 20th century when I guess a lot of white people just kind of had a free pass in a lot of these places, particularly, ex, you know, British colonies as they... Sure, yeah decolonized i really i really feel like this was an element of and i don't mean scoundrel in that everyone was a terrible person that but people were drawn to a life away from living in a back street london suburb or something and working in crappy job in the miserable weather you know they were they wanted to be in correspondence clubs with ceiling fans and mint juleps and singapore slings and 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 henderson's character in the film is like oh, i'm i refuse to go completely japanese i've lived here for 28 years and i'm only just beginning to understand what they're about and funnily mm. enough i remember talking to an american chap um, at an impro festival who's part of a Tokyo-based impro troupe. And they're predominantly uh, Americans in Tokyo, but they've got some Japanese members as past and they, they, they do impro bilingually. And I was talking to him a little bit about, like, the Japanese character. And he's like, oh, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely like a Japanese mindset sort of thing. There's like a cultural thing that is takes a long time to kind of understand. So yeah. I was interested that Henderson in the film says that it's like it's and again I'm not trying to exoticize and go oh they're impenetrable but the fact is they're a different culture that was that's been incredibly strong culturally both before the war obviously very strong you know during the war but then subsequently you know Japanese cultural power is vast you know anime and yes yeah absolutely so they are a really interesting culture and I can see why you'd get people quite fascinated to go and live there you know, particularly in this quote-unquote romantic element, you know, being a correspondent, being a spy sort of thing. I've kind of wandered off topic now, haven't I? Uh, but <laughs> the point is... Well, no, no, I understand what you're saying, though. And and that's obviously what Fleming was picking up on when he, when he so, visited the country. And so it was this guy, Hughes, who arranged Fleming to have this, like, three-week trip, and he took him around Japan. And they went to all these different places, and that kind of inspired the locations in You Only Live Twice. And Fleming said, I'm putting you... and a Japanese guy that they had with them on the trip whose name was Tiger Tanaka or his last name was Tanaka. And so he went, I'm making you a character and I'm making you a character. (laughs) So the names are directly (laughs) from life, as he is to do. We should also point out that Blofeld, who appears in this film, uh, was named after a bully that uh, Fleming went to Eton with. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah, he's a real, real guy. So Very cool. Yeah. So I, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, the point that Roald Dahl, as the screenwriter, it's so great because he says in the uh, – where does he say it? Dahl said the original novel was, quote, Fleming's worst book with no plot in it which would even make a movie and compared it to a travelogue stating There's no that- chocolate factories in this at all. 
stating that he had to create a new plot and he could only retain four or five of the original story's ideas. I love that the guy who wrote the BFG and James and the Giant Peach is like, this is far too outlandish. <laughs> but also it didn't have, you know, the required action. You know, it was more this contemplative. They have a sword fight in a, in a souped up Japanese castle with Blofeld in samurai armor. I actually would love to see it if you filmed that plot. And like now someone needs to someone needs to make that. Okay, so to come full circle. <laughs> can that be the next Daniel Craig one? Well, if, he, if he agrees now, to another one, we can. Now, Stu, can... I, I told you to keep the word Shatterhand in your mind. Oh God, yes. Shatterhand was the code name or the working title for No Time to Die. Oh my God, was it really? That's what it was called. No wow. time. To has there been has there been like pictures of Japanese castles in the trailers? I can't remember. No, no. But it does have Blofeld in it. it sure, so it does. Yeah, yeah. Possibly, possibly he wow. might he might appear under the alias of Shatterhand or something, and then oh, Bond, and then he goes, Ah, oh, it's me again. Ha ha ha! Look at it's my sunglasses. Hello. Hello, James. Let's have a fight. I'll have a samurai sword. That's my attempt at Blofeld. I'm not trying to insult anyone. except Spe- Specifically at the, the new version of Blofeld. Yeah. Oh, James, um, I'm so naughty. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cuckoo in the nest. Cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. <laughs> Sorry. Every time I edit a podcast, there's always a reference to me going, God damn, Spectre. <laughs> But yes, it is not the title, but it was the working title, which is interesting considering it was an alias for Blofeld. So not cool. sure if it was. Okay, that's very cool. I didn't know that. That's awesome. And often that's where they've they've picked names or they've picked things from Fleming's life or other, you know, short stories that, you know, weren't like Quantum of Solace was a short story, I think, in a collection. It wasn't a full novel. And Octopussy, for example, was a short story that has absolutely no relation to the movie. <laughs> they're, just take, they're like, because why wouldn't you use that title? Yeah, it's just, hey, that's a fun title. So, and and Goldeneye, of course, was Fleming's house in Jamaica. It was called yes. Goldeneye. So they they like to pick all these things, but sometimes was it has Skyfall a, anything? I don't know, but I don't think so. I mean, they make it obviously his childhood home, but I yeah, I'd, but but that was that was like an invention of the movie. That wasn't. That they yeah. haven't taken that name from somewhere, or I don't think so. We'll uh, find we'll out when we get there. We'll find out. But yeah, so I think that it would be quite fun to see this weird. You know, I suppose I can see Roald Dahl being given because he wasn't the original choice for scriptwriter. They had someone else, and then they fired him, and they kind of called Roald Dahl up and gave him a few weeks, and he was like, "Well, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do." So he actually said, "You know what I'm going to do? Basically, Doctor No." So there's going to be a guy. Right, okay. And some girls. And if you look at it. As you say that, like, I just realized that, like, Kissy, Kissy Suzuki? Yes. Yeah, she's in the white uh, bikini. Bikini thing, because she's an amateur. I never, I never put that together. She's a pearl diver. So instead okay. of diving for shells, she's diving for pearls. I, I never put that together. Which, but but, but she, you... but, but unlike Honey Rider, like, she is actually a spy, right? Yes, she's, she's an agent working for Tanaka, as they yeah. all seem to be in this film. Yeah, everyone's an agent working for Tanaka. <laughs> I love Tanaka. I actually really like Tanaka. And he's, he was, he's a pretty, yeah. The actor's name is um, Tetsuo Temba. Tetsuro Tamba, sorry, my apologies. And then he was dubbed. But then the girls they got, or the, the women they got, were both stars but didn't really speak a lot of English. 
And so they had cast Mia Hama, who played Kissy Suzuki, as Aki. Right. But then her English wasn't as good, so they swapped her with Akiko Wakabayashi, who was going to play Kissy, but then they swapped them because Kissy had less dialogue, so she had less English to learn. Yeah, well, I was going to say, Kissy shows up at, like, with 20 minutes to go in the film. Like, yeah, it's very yeah. strange. And pretty much, again, I didn't have this in my uh, in my list, but it was part of the whole thing, is Aki dies when she and Bond are, like, snuggling together because a Spectre agent drops poison on a string down towards Bond's mouth, intending yes. to drop it into his mouth and kill him. And, of course, he just sort of moves out of the way. She moves across and she gets the poison full on in the mouth. And, of course, she just immediately has a seizure and dies. And then Bond's like, oh, I must get to that island. And then he's yes. like, no, but you must get married first. And he's like, is she pretty? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like, like, Aki has just died. She, her body is there. But he had said, when when Tanaka had said, oh, you must take a wife, and he looked at Aki and kind of grabs her hand in this quite romantic gesture. Mm. And Tanaka's like, no, 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 she's not local. You must marry a local a woman who's a diver, and she's an agent of mine, but she has a face like why? a pig. Why? I don't, like, I don't uh, understand why. The movie gives no reason whatsoever. Because like, she's local, it, because it's a small fishing village. And he's, I mean, there's nothing – it's just – it's so weird. Like, like I, I, I understand – but why does he have to marry her? You know, put him in disguise, like, and make him up as a Japanese man. Not great, but okay. <laughs> but then why do they need to get married? And why the elaborate ceremony? Again, I don't know who that's for, because it's not on the island, is it? Or is it? That, I, think, I don't think it's on the island, because they travel yeah, to the island. They do. Right? They so, do. so who's that for? It is makes it, no sense. Is it to keep... They just show up on the island and say, yeah, we got married. It was on the mainland. Moving on. Look, all I'm guessing is that there's an authenticity thing that they... What, you have to you have to get fake married for real? I don't know. And the thing is, I was about to say, or oh, maybe to, to convince her parents or something, but then she says her parents are dead. She says her on screen, <laughs> yeah. her parents are dead. That there is no one that would care. I feel like maybe that was Roald Dahl's way of going, I'll keep this kind of big Japanese thing that Fleming wrote, that he loved Japan... And he was super into the culture, so I'll keep this bit in. You know, it's certainly... But it exists It exists as this weird appendix that, that just, like, this completely vestigial plot element that doesn't... Yeah. Like, there's no reason for it. Yes. There's no reason for it. And, and just in, in, the, in the exact same way as the thing that happens at the start of the movie, which we can talk about a bit later, but there, there's a lot of stuff that happens in this movie that it's purely for us as the audience. There yes. is no in-universe in reason for this stuff to be happening. Yes. It does make me wonder. I must try and watch maybe one of the making of documentaries. It's on my DVD. Uh, still watching the DVDs <laughs> and see what else is is in there because I think it was the biggest gap because Thunderball came out Christmas 1965 and this one came out. It was filmed between July 66 to March 67. Oh, that's a long. That's a long. Yeah. Trip. And then was released June 67. Gosh, they had quite a quick editing time there, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, they really slapped it together. Three, three maybe they were editing as they went. Quite possibly. Uh, and maybe they, they went to different locations. So, But that's a long filming time and it was the biggest gap. So maybe they, you know, had various. I know there was a great, there's a great story about production when Harry Saltzman, Albert Broccoli, Ken Adam, who the incredible set designer who made the Volcano Lair, and the director of photography, Freddie Young, went to Japan, went three weeks looking for locations. Do you know why they, they decided to make it a volcano, an extinct volcano for the headquarters? Because it's awesome. Yes, but because, also because, because it's cool. 
It turns out the Japanese don't build castles by the sea. So so it turns out Ian Fleming just completely made up the stuff. Yeah, he just went, oh, that'd be fun. So they went, okay, that'd let's be fun, a seaside castle. But it's also, as you say, incredibly cool. Anyway, so that group of people, key production people, producers, production designer, director of photography, they were due to go back to the UK on the 5th of March, 1966, but then they mm. someone said, hey, do you want to come to the a ninja demonstration? And, and they, they said, went, yes, absolutely. Why are absolutely. you even are? Why aren't we already going there straight away? So the flight they were supposed to be on crashed 25 minutes after takeoff. Everyone was killed. Oh, wow. Jesus. So oh, they, wow. So hang on. Who was there? So so Broccoli, Saltzman, the producers, Ken Adams, right. the production designer, yep. and Freddie Young, who was the director of photography. So all four extremely important, like, early Bond people. Missed it by that much. Well, like, we, we, yeah. <laughs> Bring and get smart back in. Very nice. I like it. <laughs> but also ninjas. Saved but by also ninjas. ninjas. Look, I mean, I think if someone comes up to you and says, uh, you know, would you like to see some ninjas? The answer is like, yes, absolutely. Really? But I think they were, I think that was for all the stuff around the stuff of Japanese culture in this film. The fact is they obviously were committed to, you know, portraying Japanese culture and Japanese locations and Japanese things on screen and it made me think and I, I haven't done a huge a deep dive into this but I assume some Japanese film probably was in the west at that time but I can't imagine it'd be super widespread like maybe I'm not sure in when is seven I, like, I feel like the 70s was really that, yeah. that's when you got a lot of the Hong Kong martial arts movies sort of making their way over okay seven samurai was 1954 I think yes but that that um, didn't make it to the west for a while Rational was like. 1950. Like, Kurosawa was making those films in the 50s, but I feel like it was only, like, film nerds who knew about them. Like, it wasn't... Yeah. Like a... Yeah. So, I do think that this might have been an introduction for a lot of people to things like ninjas. And and what an introduction. Pearl divers and and even, like, a lot of the high tech because that's very much... You know, Japan is the nascent economic powerhouse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so you get, like, the Osato headquarters where Bond manages to get himself in and there's cool safes and, you know, it's very clean, sleek, minimalist Mm. office buildings and as opposed to back in the UK where they'd had either big cathedral with paintings and tapestries or <laughs> M's little dinky office, you know, and now all of a sudden... His office with, like, uh, like, like couch walls. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, and again, we'd have to ask someone who saw it when it first came out, but I think it would have been quite a big, hey, look at this Japanese culture, like how exciting it is, how, sure. and, you know, for want of a better term, how, how exotic. But also what I liked is... We've just forgotten the minute challenge totally, but we'll come back. What I liked too was the little references to Japan being obviously the superior culture and bond from this like, oh, well, you're just from the West. Like when Tanaka has his own train going around Tokyo because you wouldn't travel (laughs) on the streets. And, uh, you know, all this high-tech stuff. And then he serves bond sake. And Bond says, oh, yes, I like I, I like sake, particularly when it's served at the correct temperature. Bond's such a weebo. What's a weebo? Oh, like a, like a, like a Japanese nerd, like a, a white Japanese guy. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, hang on, wait, so a Japanese guy who likes to pretend to be white or a white guy who... No, is... no, no, like, like, a, like a white guy who's super into Japanese culture. Like one, one of those guys who's like, yeah, I really love anime and I really love like, you know, <laughs> keeps a samurai sword on the wall and all that sort of thing. Isn't, isn't weebo the Chinese text message service? Probably. I'm probably, I'm actually, I've probably gotten that name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I've probably embarrassed myself. 
but anyway, it's fine. I thought it was like a, a gaijin is what, isn't that what Japanese people call, I don't know if that's a correct term, but I just remember seeing that somewhere in films like a gaijin, like is a white person. I, I think so. I'm not sure. But it could be derogatory. I'm not. I'm not sure. We are. We are fumbling in the dark. Yeah, really are. <laughs> Call in if you're a Japanese culture expert. Um, particularly if you are, in fact, Japanese. We'd love to know. I, I would love to know a Japanese perspective on this. And I thought about it just before we started recording. I was like, I probably should have found a Japanese person to come on and talk about this. But uh, Stu, given that we've now had this God knows how long diversion from our minute challenge. <laughs> Well, look, yeah, I mean, just, okay. to, just, to tie a bow, just to tie a bow on it. We talk about what inspires us. Talk about what inspires us. Yes, as in, you know, we're inspired to talk about the problematic stuff. We oh, go yes, exactly. That yeah, well, and, and that's, yeah, and that, that's what I'm saying. Like, like you know, I, I think just, just to tie a bow on it, like, it's, again, it's one of those things with I don't think the movie is being malicious in its portrayal. It's it's not seeking to portray Japanese culture as inferior or anything like that. Like it's definitely but it is an early example of that sort of othering and exotic sort of portrayal of other cultures that I think has really gotten a lot better in recent years. I mean this movie is what 50 years old? You know, things have things have gotten a lot better. 55 the, 50 yeah, probably probably more than that. Yeah. So I mean like it's it's over half a century old. Times have changed like like uh, the the portrayal of, of Asian people in in media has changed for for the better mostly and fine like you know it's it's a it's a it's a weird artifact and it kind of completely derails the first part of the third act of this movie and then it just goes away like like as soon as Bond gets to the volcano lair they just drop it and for the better <laughs> like it's fine <laughs> so that it's just this weird digression it's a really yeah. weird digression in like the sort of the two thirds of the of the way along in this movie. It's really strange and it's noteworthy. And I just wanted to really just point it out and we can move on. The second point on my minute <laughs> challenge list. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, the second point on my uh, list is a spaceship that eats other spaceships. Oh my um, God. There is so much in this movie, Natalie, that is absolutely awesome and that's one of them i love that idea had you ever seen that before no i hadn't i hadn't even seen like um like clips of it i i had no idea this was going to happen and suddenly this 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 spaceship shows up that's going to eat other spaceships i'm so glad you had that reaction that is that is awesome i'm very into that you can imagine how people would have been sitting in the cinema going oh "Oh my god it's gonna eat it and then had when, 2001 come out? That was that was 69. Yeah, so it hadn't. Yeah, so this is pre 2001. So this right. is but but also like again as we keep pointing out, all of these films pre moon landing. Yes. Every single one of them. It's insane and, and to so think that. The space race was a real. Yeah, it was a current event in people's minds. So the concept that there are rockets up there and spaceships up there and people in space and the Russians and the Americans both trying to. Know, do their thing and then all of a sudden this strange other you know mystery bullet in the sky that opens yes. more a, a UFO if you will yeah no but yeah the way it's more opens when the astronaut is doing a spacewalk and did you notice the proportion like the astronaut is the same size as the space <laughs> yes. it's like the proportion is a bit off but when his line gets cut and he's screaming into the it's really scary and the music oh this film has such good music. Just the dun 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 dun. It's so scary. It's so atmospheric, and I love. And I always forget that that's this film. I always 
kind of get it confused with Moonraker, which it absolutely is not. But uh, it's because no. it's like space. I sometimes get confused, as you do with Bond films, where you go, was that this movie? Was that this movie? Mm. And then I'm always so excited when it happens. And the other great thing filmically about this, and, of course, we have a new director, Lewis Gilbert, who comes on board for You Only Live Twice, and he'll, okay. he'll do a few more. He, I think, brings a really interesting and deft touch in some ways. And one of the ways is when that scene is repeated with the Russian spaceship about halfway through the film, there's no subtitles. There's no need for subtitles because it's the same thing happening but with the Russians narrating it. So you just get this more and more panicked Mm. Russian language, oh, God, oh, God, and you can hear that and they're not doing a spacewalk at the time, but you can hear them like yelling in Russian, scared to death. And it's really effective. They tell the story in that first scene, so by the time you see it again, you know what's going on. You don't need any subtitles, or you know what they're saying. Absolutely, no. I thought I thought that was a really cool touch that they do it that they do they do the full run through twice. Yes, and uh, then they're very cool. And, and then, then the third is yeah. About to do it a third time. Never quite sure why they are trying to do it a third time, but yeah, yeah, it's a bit strange. And then I'm not sure why uh, you would have a remote. Uh, self-destruct and then i remembered that uh it's it's specter run by blofeld who has like death chairs and and that sort of thing so actually that makes perfect sense it's not as clear as thunderball which is steal nuclear weapons hold will to ransom this one's a bit steal rockets from space his evil plot is a little bit more convoluted in this one yeah and there's a heavy implication that it's china who's the other superpower that's kind of want paying specter to like to create the war because in the final shot, you see the mystery rocket has like CCCP on the side of it. Or CCP. Yeah, I wondered about that. Yeah. So it's kind of implied that China is the other big power that's maybe part of it, yes. part of Spectre, or they're the ones trying to, you know, get the... But then Blofeld, when he says, in a few hours after America and Russia have wiped each other out, a new power will rise, mm. which he obviously means Spectre, because they'll betray. But maybe that was the point. They'll go, he was going to blow up the... Chinese satellite, so there was no proof. Or I don't know. It's not very clear. Uh, <laughs> I'm still not. <laughs> it's a little bit. I was. I was definitely a bit murky on the final details of the plan. I, I knew that they were trying to force a war between the Russians and the Americans. Yes. But yeah, the, the it was it was definitely like the midpoint of that plan was a big question mark, and then the final point was profit. Yeah. Uh, so yes. you know, but the third the third uh, item on my list was volcano lair. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, extremely awesome. Finally, like, get a, a decent, a decent supervillain lair. Yes. This is excellent. Agreed. Um, so we. Agreed. That set was incredible. Did you notice the slightly wonky monorail though? I did. I was <laughs> going to mention that. In in some ways, I was more impressed by that because it was very obvious that they had built a fully working monorail. Yeah. Right. Which is insane. Like, like they built like a massive. So like, that because like, that set, went right around the set. Yeah, that set cost one million pounds i think they, or one million dollars that they built uh like they built that in like an aircraft harrier hangar or something right? uh they built it at pinewood studios right and it towered above the actual studios and so people i was reading it here somewhere let me pull this up people started turning up to the studios to try and see what was going on because the <laughs> because the, the giant volcano the volcano was so tall uh here we go the set of Spectre's volcano base was constructed at a lot inside Pinewood Studios with a cost of $1 million, including an operative heliport and monorail. The 45-metre-tall set could be seen from five kilometres away and attracted many people from the region. 
yeah, that 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 set is amazing. Um, it's and so in, great. in in the, the the reality of the movie, I just it's a volcano layer. It's fantastic. It's yeah. There's a reason it's iconic. It's the volcano layer. It's fantastic. The, the entire film of Doctor No was made for a million dollars, and that one set by this film yeah. was a million dollars. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's how far the franchise has come. In yeah. this In this time, in in the space of what was it, um, sixty two to sixty seven. Yes. Yes. So in the space of five years, they've they've gone from a relatively low-key spy thriller with a bit of a a crazy supervillain at the end to full-on volcano lair and a spaceship that eats other spaceships and spending a million dollars on one set. It's incredible. It's just lately the production values in this movie are, are insane. So, so th- those were the two things that sort of stood out to me after the after the the first item we talked about. The spaceship that eats other spaceships. Volcano Lair. Like, this is full-on, like, it's crazy, Bond, man. crazy it's super Bond. Bond. I love this stuff. I absolutely love it. <laughs> I, I just wish, I wish there wasn't this weird anachronistic thing in the middle of this movie that I could just enthusiastically it's like this thing's bananas you need to watch it straight away this is what James Bond should be like you know attack spaceships and and volcano lairs and 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 kill piranhas and the secret, oh. meeting, the secret meeting in the, the giant space ball? Or yes. What, yes. You, what is that thing at Epcot Center ball? <laughs> yes, exactly. God, yes. I'm a, <clears throat> but anyway, like I love this about the, the, the Bond films and the early Bond films especially. Like they, they have this charming, like a 1960s version of futuristic or sophisticated technology, and I love it. Yeah. I just yeah. really, really love it. Yeah. The next item I had on my list was uh, henchmen, I guess. This movie yeah. doesn't really have a lot of henchmen. We've, we spend so much time with uh, Tiger and, and Bond that uh, we don't really get a lot of uh, a lot of the Spectre side of things. Yeah. We have the driver, like the, the Japanese driver, who Bond has a great fight, uh, fight scene with. I really like that fight scene. It was like a proper drag, no, knockdown, drag-out fight. Yes. They throw couches yeah. at each other. Throw what? Okay. Yep. Oh, in so this is just to explain. So when uh, Henderson is killed, which I must say, I, that to me is an iconic Bond death, like from my childhood. Like that image yeah. of him mid-sentence just stopping, Bond going up to him, pulling him away, and the knife in his back. There's a knife in the back. Through that's, that's the spy stuff. Through the rice paper curtain, uh, <laughs> and then Bond just crashes through it. Like that's an enduring image of my childhood. Uh, so he tackles the assassin realizes he has an accomplice in the car. Accomplish? I'm getting more Sean Connery. Accomplish. He has an accomplice <laughs> in the car. Uh, so he puts on his jacket and face mask. <laughs> yes. That's very timely. And then sort of pretends he's wounded and jumps in the back seat and that way manages to sneak in when the driver goes back to the Osato company building. And then he get, lets the bloke carry him all the way upstairs. <laughs> I know. I, I love that detail. He's like... Let's see where you take me. And what I love is that the driver didn't think, wow, I left with a, and a, this is no offense, but Japanese people on average, shorter no, than No, I was Western going to make the same point, yes. People? <laughs> I, I came uh, back with Sean Connery, who is, like, noteworthy in his height. Like, he's, he's like, 6'5 like or something. 6'2 or something, 6'2, 6'3, and he's a he's big a tall, unit. He's yeah. a tall, well-built man. He's got to have at least a foot on the assassin, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> the guy doesn't. Well, I mean, you know, he's a big guy. Like, he, he himself is a big guy. I'm sure that, like, that will <laughs> – I'm sure he probably – it all feels the same to him. He's like, oh, oh I'm carrying not. carrying men around Sean all the Connery's time. Sean Connery's a metre 88, uh, 6'2". Six Roger Moore is a metre 86, so that's like 6'1". Really? One. I would have thought Roger Moore would be taller than Sean Connery. Isn't that interesting? I would have picked – Yeah, that's strange. 
I would have pipped Roger Moore as taller, but uh, I think probably he was slimmer build, whereas Sean Connery had the mus- more, you know, more muscular, dirty build. So maybe that's the reason. If you're skinnier, you look longer. But hey, here we go. George Lazenby, six feet two and a half. He apparently is the tallest. I oh, think. there you go. The tallest. The tallest so far. That's right. <laughs> uh, Daniel Craig isn't that tall. No, Daniel uh, Craig's pretty short, right? Like you know, he's a, a fine height, but like he is one point seven eight. That's my height. That's some. That that's under six foot. That's that's crazy. That's five nine, five ten. Yeah. Five ten. He's five ten. I'm one. That's right. I'm one seventy six or one seventy six. Right. Okay. Depending on the day. But yes. So I'm just under Daniel Craig's height. Well, you'd be taller than Daniel Craig then, Stu. What are you? Are you six I, foot? I, I'm I'm one eighty three. So I'm bang on six foot. There you go. You're taller than Bond, Stu. Yeah, hey, I'm taller than a Bond. That'll do. I'll take it. <laughs> But but yeah so so well, I mean so so he has like this awesome fight scene uh, with the first henchman I guess, I guess that counts as a henchman it's Asado's henchman and that that's that's his heavy that he sends to people and like they're throwing they're throwing chairs at each other it's great it's such a great fight scene uh, it's so good and then he d- dumps the body in a bar and immediately pours himself a drink. Yeah, that, it, that was a great character moment. I thought that was so good. Yeah, but it was also, it wasn't like a self-satisfied No, drink. it was like, I, I really need a drink. It was like, <laughs> I really need a drink. It was like, grab some water, dude. Just yeah. <laughs> refresh yourself. What well, water, water doesn't cut it, it. It had this slightly vague feel of someone like, I need a drink. I need a drink. Like, slightly alcoholic. And to be fair, the amount that Bond drinks, you can totally understand it. And he smokes a lot in this film. Oh, I need to point out, there are... Multiple references to Bond smoking and smoking being bad in this film. Tanaka says it. Yes. Bad for your health. And then Blofeld says cigarettes are bad for you. It won't be the nicotine that kills you. 1967 saying in Bond films, smoking is bad for you. Yes. Why didn't people listen? Probably because they went, <laughs> well, there's, there's also a film that has a volcano lair. And a... <laughs> why would you believe that? It's it, is, it is strange to, to hear like anti-smoking stuff in a, in a Bond film from 1967. It's it's a bit yeah, strange. It's amazing. That was what uh, caught me this time around going, what the hell? <laughs> That's true. I hadn't picked up on that, but you're right. I guess it's 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 an interesting thing to note that, okay, this is where this is where people were starting to take notice that, yeah, it's not great. Incredible, huge criminal mastermind Ernst Tatro Blofeld tells Bond smoking's bad for you. Smoking's bad. <laughs> Have you finished your list? Have you got well, I was going to say, um, speaking of Blofeld, also Blofeld is there. Yeah. Uh, this is this is weird. Um, so Donald Pleasance obviously uh, plays Blofeld in this movie. The movie kind of, to, for for my money anyway, it kind of doesn't make as big a deal out of Blofeld as I think. I mean, it's, obviously we we build him up because like he's Bond's nemesis. But even these movies have been treating him as Bond's nemesis. Like Spectre has been a Spectre over the whole run of films. We're we're five films into this series. He's been a presence in in four of them, you know. And to have and we finally meet this mysterious man who's behind <laughs> all this thing, and he's a very tiny man, uh, which I guess was the point. Quite camp. And quite camp, and um, like he's obviously with, with the the the, the eye scar and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but he kind of he kind of he, like he's literally like poking his head out from behind his giant henchman. Yeah. Like it's it's very weird. It's a weird it's, way, and it's not like I want to cut the movie some slack and maybe try to and, and say that maybe they were going for the fact that like you know he's he's this he's been built up into this huge looming threat, and actually he's very tiny and relatively harmless. But I 
don't no, know no, I that don't, that's what I, they were trying for. I, yeah. So he wasn't the original choice. Right. The original guy they cast was an actor called Jan Werich, who was Czech. Sure. Uh, Where did they find these people? So, well, they just would have looked for Eastern <laughs> European character actors. Like, I love that this was. I mean, I love that this was a time where you were just these random people are just showing up in movies. Like, mm. sure, okay, like a random Czech character actor. He's going to be our main supervillain. Yes. So then got him there, and there's a picture. If you go to the Wikipedia for You Only Live Twice, there's a picture of Jan there holding his cat as Blofeld, and he's got like a goatee beard that's grey at the bottom, and he's got a full head of hair sort of greying at the temples. So upon his arrival at the Pinewood set, both Albert Broccoli and director Lewis Gilbert felt that he was a poor choice resembling a, quote, poor benevolent Father Christmas. <laughs> They continued to make, you know, the casting work. They kept filming. But after several days, they both decided that Warwick was not menacing enough and recast Blofeld with Donald Pleasance. Pleasance's ideas for Blofeld's appearance included a hump, a limp, a beard, and a lame hand before he settled on the scarf. <laughs> he's just he's just putting a hat on a hat on a hat, isn't he? He's but he found, he found the scar uncomfortable because of the glue that attached it to his eye. So in the in the movie, in, in the books rather, like Blofeld didn't have the scar? That wasn't a... Uh... Oh, yes, I don't think so. I shouldn't think so. And he doesn't have it again, really. Like the different Blofelds have different... Because in the next film, I'll be really interested next week when we do on Her Majesty's Secret Service, because, of course, this is the last Connery film, quote-unquote, the last Connery film, (laughs) and we go to George Lazenby and Telly Savalas plays Blofeld. Now, he is very good in the role, but I don't... I think maybe he has a uh, slight scar, but I don't think it's as... Maybe not as severe as this. He doesn't. I'm just looking up some images, and he doesn't... No, he looks very, very menacing and... He looks much more convincing as a villain without the scar, if that makes sense. And as I understand it, he's sort of regarded as one of the better Blofelds. And then Charles Gray does it and he's got the eye patch. So that's kind of his thing. But it's really interesting. And, you know, because Blofeld's so like the pictures of Donald Pleasance are so iconic that you forget that he's really only in the film for a tiny bit. He's quite – I found him so camp. Like you can see why – Mike Myers when I've got to take the piss out of out <laughs> Yes, of exactly. Well, you like know. he he is he specifically is very obviously the inspiration for the vis- the visual look of of Doctor Evil. He he definitely is, but I think some of Doctor Evil's more the jerky movements and the slight the physicality and the the crouching because <laughs> yes. you know Blofeld escapes on the monorail and he's kind of crouched in this monorail and then he runs out and flicks a key into a sequence of thing and it bang blows up the thing and then he escapes so we don't see him die so I wonder why Donald Pleasance didn't come back not sure but it's really a little character role it's not got the heft particularly because like we were talking about previously with Jaws as the shark is much more menacing when you don't see his face. Yes, exactly. And finally we see Blofeld's face and it's a good reveal. You're like, Oh my God, this is him. But then his character (laughs) isn't, doesn't seem to match the very deliberate. He's stroking the cat, but he seems more, as you say, he's like the tiny man. Again, I'm not trying to insult short people, but he's got this, like the other Blofeld's just stroking the cat seemed very, I will say what happens now and I will clearly kill you now. And, you know, it's very measured. Yes. Whereas this Blofeld is, <sighs> yeah, a bit very, more. Very, very, uh, very hysterical almost like it's at some points. Like, 
you know, shouting yeah. at people and running away and, and yeah, it's very strange. It doesn't seem to really have the big monologue. No, yeah, exactly. There's there's no big, ah, Mr. Bond, we meet at last, Mr. Bond, and all that sort yeah. of thing. Like there's, yeah. There's not that, we don't get that moment, weirdly. Yes, I agree. You're sort of expecting a little bit more of a clash. And look, maybe Spectre did that better. The actual movie Spectre did that better than You Only Live Twice because he he and Bond actually have a good clashing moment, even though it's under appalling circumstances and plot control. (laughs) Boo, Spectre. (laughs) Oh, it's going to be so hilarious when I rewatch it and go, actually, I love it. Yeah, actually, it's really Uh, good. An underrated masterpiece. I've been living in the past and holding it to a standard that is shouldn't hold it to. Well, so, yeah. like one of the things that we need to do on this rewatch is is reevaluate and and fit all this into the into the canon in a way that we haven't had to previously. It's really cool. <laughs> So what else is on your list? We're still getting through um, the list. Sorry, we're still getting through the list. So, so yeah, I, I, I was sort of underwhelmed by Blofeld. That, that was in there. Also, uh, the second last thing that I had was that um, that helicopter is is no jetpack. So the jetpack was awesome. Is an actual jetpack. Great. Love that. Are you dissing Little Nelly? Little Nelly. No, no, listen, I'm not dissing Little Nelly. But I am saying, like, you know, it's sort of a combination of the jetpack and the Aston Martin, and it kind of fails at being both uh, in the sense that, I saw that helicopter and I knew immediately that it must be a real thing. And I went and looked it up and yes, like yes. it turns out right. there was definitely a guy who made it and the people who made the film saw it and were like, oh, we'll put that in the movie, you know? And it's like, yep, absolutely. Because it's the sort of thing that you're looking at it going, yeah, that they've seen that and gone, that looks cool. We'll put that in the movie, except we'll have it fighting like Apache attack helicopters and winning handily, like with all the crazy Q gadgets on it, which was great. But uh, did you also read that it was invented by RAF Wing Commander Ken Wallace, who was the pilot in those scenes? Also, so he, he was it. flying it. Yeah. He because, could. and this is the thing, like we, we talked last week about uh, Bond had to put on his helmet because the the guy who flew the, the jetpack was like, no, no, I'm, I'm definitely wearing my helmet. There's no way I'm flying <laughs> this thing without a helmet on. So in this one, Bond gets up and wears the dorkiest looking helmet I've ever seen. <laughs> Do you think that's part of the reason why it doesn't fly? Ah, it doesn't fly. Uh-huh. Oh. No, no, he he looks ridiculous flying this thing. Yeah, it's just very um, it's very naff the whole thing. Like he's well, got he's got this. Stu, can I just yes. remind you that at the moment we have a president of the United States of America who does not want to wear face masks because it makes him look weak or unmanly. So well, that's I true. think so. Safety I... first. I think seeing James Bond, the coolest suave spy in the world, wearing a dorky helmet for safety is a good message to kids at home who you know we're going to go home and make their own gyrocopters and jump off the roof, but at least they might be wearing their bike helmets. That's a, very, even... good, that's a very good point, Natalie. Smoke, smoke all the cigarettes you want, but wear your helmet. <laughs> well, bike helmets even a thing in the 60s. When did they come in? <laughs> probably not. When did we decide that, you know, protecting your brain was probably a good thing? <laughs> Was it before or after the waves of serial killers in the Probably. 60s and 70s? Yeah, exactly. Probably terrifyingly went, recently. Ah, head injuries seem to really affect people. <laughs> 
So uh, I really like the helicopter. It's another one of those things where it's like it's this really cool like 60s bit of like future tech that they were obviously like throwing in there. But also it's a little bit crap, a little bit <laughs> like it's just, just a little bit. It's made all the more impressive by knowing that that thing was actually up in the air flying. It's just so, so something about it. It's very charming. It's very charming in a 1960s sort of way. Can I tell you another uh, fact about the Little Nelly filming? Yeah, yeah. Just to blow your mind a bit. So it turns out that it was quite difficult to film with Little Nelly. Right. Because it's a homemade gyrocopter. <laughs> They had uh, in Miyazaki, so in Japan for the first lot of filming, they had more than 85 takeoffs, five hours of flight, and Wallace nearly crashing into the camera several times. A scene scene filming the helicopters from above created a major downdraft and cameraman John Jordan's foot was severed by the craft's rotor. It was surgically reattached by surgeons visiting the country, then amputated back in London when the surgery was deemed to have been flawed. Jordan would continue to work for the Bond series with a prosthetic foot. (laughs) So this guy gave a foot to the Bond franchise. He did. (laughs) That is commitment. And the thing is, like, uh, back then they would have gone, yes, well done. Uh, he, back back you go. He gave them an inch and they took a foot. And they took a foot. Hey! <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, um, you, remember, you remember my awesome Felix Leiter joke from last week? I do. Felix Midstrom. Very good. I'm so proud of that. Anyway, I was checking in with uh, Dan from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast about something else, and that came up, and I said, oh, did you like it? And he said, like it, I booed it. Fantastic. That, that's actually high praise. That's high praise coming from Dan. Yeah, but then he was disappointed in you for approving of my joke. Because <laughs> you laughed at it. Hey, and he I'll, like, stand, I'll, stand, I'll stand by it. That, that's, that's one of the best <laughs> jokes you've ever done. Dan's shaking his head right now. Absolutely. I can feel him shake. I can feel his disdain. And we're still waiting to see if Dan and Greg from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast have any kind of physical solution for us on scuba sex from Thunderball. So Yes, yes, please yeah. tell us, boys. We need to we need to know if it's physically possible. <laughs> Maybe we can get them onto the physics of putting a crater into an extinct volcano. Well, not an extinct volcano, because I think when they blow it up it erupts. I thought that was just the eruption of the bay. Oh, I just okay. assumed that was like the base going up and it was like, oh, the volcano is active once more. But I don't think it was because everyone would have died on the island. <laughs> well, well, yes, obviously. Like that, that fishing village is done. Mm. <laughs> the, the, the last item on my list was that, uh, and to bring it full circle, Bond fakes his own death. Ah, this never comes up again. Which was first uh, on my list. So isn't that yes, a nice coincidence? A nice, a nice dovetail. So... I love that whole sequence. It's great. Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I love the elaborate sort of ruse. And then he gets picked up by the MI6 submarine where all of the uh, office layout has been recreated but with bulkheads. I so love I, it. I thought you were going to say what I was thinking first, which is where everyone is in shorts. Oh, yes. Well, everyone's in shorts, obviously. Everyone's We're in the Navy, in the- you see. Crisp white short. I think even M is in shorts. You can't quite <laughs> see. He gets up at one point and walks to a desk and then walks back, and you just can't quite see if they are shorts. They're long enough to just get down to the bottom of the screen. But I'm That's fairly, it. I'm fairly certain like M, you know. the most important person in British Secret Service, is in shorts. Red, crisp white shorts. <laughs> money penny, money pennies in slacks. She's in like shallots or something. Whatever's going on there. Uh, shallots. Shallots. Do you mean culottes? Culottes. There we go. Yes. <laughs> that thing. 
<laughs> I'm doing that a lot. There. Oh, you can tell I'm tired. That's that's I'm doing that a lot this week. <laughs> Did she have um? <laughs> sorry, I... sorry, I'm sorry. I can't get over shallots. I'm not laughing at you. I'm I, laughing. Me, I meant culottes. I meant culottes. I know you did. It's just a hilarious malapropism. It, it, it definitely is. So good. Cooking oh. with Money Penny. <laughs> We're getting delirious again. We are, <laughs> I love, yes. I love it when the Bond podcast just seemed to have delirium as the eventual emotion we work towards. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we work ourselves into a delirium. It's they fantastic. Fire delirium. <laughs> I think what this means, Stu, is that we'll actually have to write a Bond movie. Uh, yes, well, yeah. Record it, Jefferson Starfish style, because I still haven't done that Doctor Who one that I promised months ago. But I should do a Bond film where you can play we Bond. Should, we should definitely do a Bond film, and we can decide uh, which Bond I play. Yes. Or maybe I'll play all of them. And then I'll wear shallots. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> oh, I'm so mean. I'm so mean. <laughs> But yes, I'll wear the shallots and then we can get other people in to do the voices. You, you wear the shallots in this relationship. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> it is it's perfectly recreated. Well, he from... does the hat thing. I, I love that. Like, they've, they've kept that yeah. hat thing going in every movie, which is great. But he doesn't wear a hat anymore. That's his naval kind of official uniform hat. That's his, you know, yeah, exactly. He doesn't turn up with a hat hat anymore. I think this must be the great kind of de-hattening. I think so, yeah, you're right. Because in the, in the last movie, he had a hat and there was like a bit of business with him about to throw and then he doesn't throw or, or someone else throws for him or something. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then in this movie, he's got his naval hat. And then I think from, from now on, he must not wear a hat because I don't remember Bond wearing a hat from now on. Can I tell you a weird coincidence? I was at my yeah. parents' the other night for dinner because I'm poor and they cook nice food. So <laughs> I, uh, when they say, hey, we're making food tonight, would the, you like to come eat you want to visit it? them, you know, you enjoy, you enjoy their company. There's all that too, but then they cook like vegetables and stuff, and that's very important. So I went over, and then Dad wanted to show me this YouTube clips of a tour guide. We're talking about tour guides or, you know, walking tours sort of thing, and it was like, oh, there's this great guy on YouTube who's a Londoner who dresses up in cool kind of kooky, quirky outfits, suits and bowler hats and braces and bow ties and walking canes and that sort of thing. He's sort of a quirky, lovely chap, looks a bit like John Cleese, you know, tall and lanky with the bowler hat sort of thing. And he just does little YouTube videos. Obviously, he's a tour guide and you can hire him, but he also puts stuff up on YouTube. And he was doing this walk through St. James and going through some of the very expensive posh shops there. And he ended up in this hat shop where the chap was saying there's only two hat manufacturers in London left and they're one of them, and they go all the way back to, like, the late 1600s. Right. And he was saying some of the hats that they've made, like, totally handcrafted hats. So they made the Indiana Jones hat. Right, yes. Iconic. I can't remember. But they made a bunch for the Bond films, including Odd Jobs hat. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And send it to you, but I got I was really excited going, Oh gosh, you know, of course, you think about it, they would have costumers on the films, but quite likely, if they wanted something special, you know, if you want something genuine made by experts, you go to the 400 year old hat firm. Well, especially, especially for something like a hat, a hat is like a specialty item, and God knows how much they would have cost. Like, even at the time, if you were to get a hat made by them now, because he was talking about how they shape it to your head and they make the contours of the hat match your face so you get the best. Right. Um, like so, a, so this this hat costs like $2,000 or something. Oh, God, who knows? But I know he went into a shoe shop and, like, the custom shoes were £5,000 a pair. Jesus like Christ. 5,000 pounds. 
yeah, custom made for you shoes. Oh my god! So, and that you know they were the shoe shop that did Queen Victoria's shoes and you know by royal right. appointment type of thing. It's huge amounts, but they're you know for posh people, you wear the right hat that suits your face shape. And I never thought about that before. I never thought that different styles or different you know the the curves of the brim sure. that would yeah, craft yeah. to match your face. I just thought you know you buy a hat, you whack it on your head. Well, look as someone as someone who has what is medically termed a big fat head. <laughs> I definitely am aware of the fact that, like, hats can make you look ridiculous if they don't sit properly. You would go to the milliner and he would sure. create for you your perfect Special hat. big fat head-shaped hat. Exactly. I can only dream, Natalie. <laughs> it's the first thing I'm doing when I win the lotto. All right, you get the hat. I'll get the 5,000-pound shoes. Yeah, okay. Awesome. Can you imagine? What, what the a town. that would be. We, Nat and Stu in St. James is in London. Here we are. <laughs> From the colonies, we're going to get stupidly expensive accessories. <laughs> All right, that's the trip. Pack yep. up everyone, pack up Rose, pack up Chloe Giants Bane. We're off to London to get ridiculous accessories. Off to London to get ridiculously expensive hats and shoes. That have a James Bond link in some way. Yes. <laughs> I'll get the spikes in mine, the poison spikes. Yes, yes, absolutely. You get, I, you get the I hat get like the razor edge around, yeah, around mine. That's right. And then we'll fight crime. And yeah, then absolutely. So everyone will know the plan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Back on track. So yes. yes, fake death. I love that. I love the permission to come aboard, sir. Also, okay. my grandfather was buried at sea. Okay. Yeah. Well, was he in the navy? Uh, well, he, yes, actually he was, but he was uh, uh, in the Polish navy in World War Two. They were on the good side, weren't they? Yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, they. My grandfather was lucky in a way because Poland only has one port. You know, it only has one point of access to mm. the sea. And when the Nazis were marching in, the Polish Navy, which was not a huge Navy, went, all right, we're out of here. And they sailed off <laughs> and they went around. Well, they knew, like, what else could they do? They sailed sure. off, joined yeah, yeah. the British Navy and said, right, we're here with you. So they became a, you know, subset of the British Navy operations. But yeah, no, my granddad was sunk in Narva, the Battle of Narva. Oh, wow. Okay. He was in the water for an hour in the ice cold water. And when he came to, he was on the deck of a boat ship and he was punching someone because <laughs> they were trying to get his life jacket off him. And he just sort of woke up going, no, don't take my life jacket. Don't take my life jacket. And they were trying to get it off him to like warm him up <laughs> right, <laughs> and save his life. Get the life jacket. It was, you know, sodden. And he was like, no, don't take my life jacket. Uh, and then kind of came to. But he also... My grandma says that he remembers watching a ship go down and watching, seeing sailors' faces in the portholes. And it must have been the ship he was on got sunk and he jumped off and, yeah, he remembers seeing people's faces. And I'm like, that's so fucked. Yes, yes, it is. War um, is not good. It's not good. But he, yeah, he was then in the Merchant Navy and when he died in 89, he was buried at sea up in Vanuatu. Oh, wow. Yeah, it can still be done. But, yeah, as I understand it, they were wrapped, like he was wrapped in the white cloth Obviously, his was a bit more watertight because he got out of it totally dry. <laughs> totally dry. In a very Bondian way. I mean, oh, that, that precedent has been set now. So suave. But it's a great, like, it was a great setup. It's out. 
I mean, it's not a it's not a full like uh, white tuxedo, but it is a naval dress uniform. He didn't have to be wearing that, but damn it, yeah. one must always be dressed for the occasion. Yeah, he has a lovely interaction with Money Penny on the ship there, where she's like, "Oh, you're yes. late from your own funeral," and then she says, "Oh, by the way, how was the girl, the Chinese girl we fixed you up with?" And then he turns the light in her house, going, "What girl?" <laughs> <laughs> another, another five minutes I would have found out. Um, and that pre-credit, that's so fun with the whole, he died on the job. He died on the job. Yeah, I know. I laughed quite hard at that line, actually. <laughs> I love it's like he's good. like shot up with a machine gun and then he falls open and he's just like not injured at all. He's not injured at all. There's a tiny a bit of blood bit, on the thing, which I guess was supposed to be a fake out for the audience. But I mean, surely even in 1967, they they realized this was a fake out. Yeah. No one's believing that they've killed James Bond in the first before the, the credits of, of the movie. Yeah. But again, and that, that was kind of going to be my point in the sense that like there's all that stuff with the, the Japanese Bond where I was, I was confused as to who it's for. Again, the stuff with the faking his death, first of all, the elaborate way in which it's set up where they set up this this assassination and then go all the way through to burying him at sea and picking him up in a submarine. <laughs> like, I'm not sure exactly who that's for. We see like a guy watching, I guess. Yeah. And it's in the papers and yeah. it, it's performative. They have to commit to it, Stu. It's that's the big, commitment. You've got to commit to the bit. You can't just say he's dead. Like, I'm not sure if the cops were in on it in Hong Kong. But again, it's one of those things where um, I guess – James Bond has become such a high-profile character. Yes. He's meant to be a spy. Oh, yeah. He is consistently the worst spy. Like, he's a famous man. I was reading, I don't know how I got onto it, but I, I was reading um, the Wikipedia page of John Le Carre. Le Carre? Le Carre? Le Carre? I have never read any John Le Carre or, I think, seen any films inspired by his stuff but i i know he's hugely respected and he's still alive he's in his late 80s but he's, he's still kicking on and he had a slightly similar kind of life to fleming in that he was in the intelligence services and he had that kind of actual role more i think in korea korean war sort of right okay time. Yeah. He, i think he might have been on the younger side for the war or maybe justin but he refers to bond as an international gangster <laughs> Or something, crime gangster. <laughs> and he's not a spy. Like, he shouldn't be in the spy genre. And so he wrote a lot of his spies to point out how miserable they are or how horrible their lives are and how there's not the action and romance and adventure and whatnot. And there's all mm. this horror and misery and death. And, <laughs> so, and funnily enough, his, his work has not seen the longevity of James Bond. I think it's hugely respected. Like, people mm. love John le Carre, and they made that Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which was hugely popular a few years ago. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But are we doing a podcast about him, Natalie? You know what, Stu? And look, if we're not doing it, clearly it doesn't matter. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I guess I would say that Bond is spy plus, like... It's well, he's a super spy. Yeah. This is the thing. Like, like he's yeah. he's he's a superhero. Yeah. You know, and he has super villains. He does. So let me continue on with my list, which I've talked about: the fake deaths, the funeral arrival, the pre-credit sequence I mentioned being super scary, the um, Epcot ball with the US USSR. <laughs> yes. I, I will just say, like, like the the credit sequence in this one is one of those early Bond films where there are just naked ladies on screen. I don't I don't know about the version that you were watching, but I was watching on like a HD transfer on on streaming and uh you can just see their boobs um that's just out there uh i yeah, i mean they're in 
shadow right? and silhouette. Oh, uh-huh. not really. Maybe in the initial print, but like the the HD transfer really really brings out like the you can see uh, some subtleties in the shadows. They're not just like plain silhouettes. Just the way <laughs> it was shot. They're not like CG or anything. Like they they shot naked women in a tank, I guess. And um, yeah. That's well, it's just some naked ladies. It's very strange. What I was reading about the Amma divers, the pearl divers, is that a lot of them used to dive just in like a loincloth, like they right. were basically naked. So maybe someone read that and went, Yeah, that sounds good. But also, it's Maurice Binder and he just seemed to get women nude. Sure. And why not? But yes, on my list, Henderson stabbing. I love that. Oh, and did oh, you yeah, notice so- the way he said Bond's cocktail, wrong way round? He says... Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, he said uh, stirred, not shaken. Stirred, correct, not right? shaken. Is that right? And, and Bob goes, goes perfect. perfect. And I'm not entirely sure whether that was meant to be there or was a mistake and they just kept it or... Well, it's a fun little it's a fun little bit, right? Like, I mean, we're, we're five episodes in and he's, he messes up the drink order. And then yeah. Bond goes, yes, perfect. Tanaka. I love Tanaka. He's just super cool. He's actually really cool. Like, he's a cool... Like, I mean, like, look, look, his views on women, maybe not as progressive as you would like in 2020. <laughs> At least he stays. He's he's out there with his views. He know he knows what he likes. Well, I do. Uh, and what he likes is a harem full of, I guess, slave women. I don't know what's <laughs> actually going on with that. Uh, I remember in Japanese class, like in high school in the nineties, you had uh, to uh, give your male classmates baths. No. But they did talk about Japanese society traditionally does have a kind of a male superiority thing going on. And I, because I remember. Very getting, unlike Western society at the time. Yes, I know. But um, <laughs> I guess in a way that to my teenage years was much more obviously bullshit. Yes. <laughs> you know, not, not in a, and, and that, and this is again, 20 years ago. So things change, but I don't think it's speaking out of school to say Japanese traditional culture had a male dominated thing no, because sure, let's sure. face it well, like like many cultures most of them do yes <laughs> but it was the way that they do the whole ah men come first women come second and what i love is that the idea that tanaka as a as a, as a japanese man is like ah no you know in in japan men come first women come second unlike you james bond who is from like a western country in the <laughs> 1960s where women have all these rights <laughs> yes Oh, those swinging 60s of really uh, women with their mini skirts and birth control. <laughs> but it's like, you know, you, you think about like women in like America or Australia in the 1960s. It's like, ah, yes, that that excellent, like progressive. That's right. Progressive countries that. Once uh, you got married as a woman, you had to quit your job. You had to quit your job, often by law. Yes, because damn it, you've got a husband now. You can't be taking away jobs from single ladies who need to catch a man. <laughs> Oh, oh dear. Ah, so, uh, yes. Fun to laugh at. Uh, <laughs> I wrote down little Nelly. I wrote down the fights. I wrote down weird angles. So, again, I think because of the director, there's lots of weird angles in this film where, well, first of all, like Bond goes down the slide and you kind of sli- see the slide from his perspective. <laughs> first time yeah, James that was Bond weird. That was slide. really weird. Wee! There was actually a little bit of uh, a little bit of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory about that almost. Yeah. <laughs> Although Charlie and the Chocolate Factory had not been made yet, so had it been written though? I think I think it had been written, but I think it um, oh it might not have been actually, but um certainly the, the Gene Wilder movie hadn't been made. And there's also the scene where they go to the docks in Kobe, and I love that Aki is just wearing a sweater. 
God, I love that. She's just wearing pants and a sweater. She's in these beautiful clothes with hair scarves and stuff to begin with in her little zippy Toyota. Love that little car. She's super cool and super chill and super efficient. And then they go to the docks and she's just in a sweater and pants. I love that. And then Bond tells her, go run away, tell Tanaka, which he later does to Kissy as well. He's like, run back, tell Tanaka. Run back and tell Tanaka. Run back. Go and get a man. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this is the thing. These days you just like tap your ear thing and go, hey, we need you now. You know, I I love the constraints that – it's true, yeah. They would all have earpieces and they would be able to talk yeah. to each other. And, yeah. But she literally has to swim across from the island with the volcano. Yes, that's back right, yeah. The... And, and, like, the helicopter, uh, like, chases her. Yeah. There's a whole and little she, sequence. But she manages it. And she climbs up the whole mountain with Bond, like, in her bikini. <laughs> and he's, he's yes. at least in full dress and she's just in and, and then what, what I love, what I love is that he then gives her, like, his coat, but only when he's sending her back. Yes. And then when they turn back up again... She's back still in the bikini. It's like nobody sure. thought to just throw her some pants <laughs> and a shirt, you know, something maybe camouflage like all the other ninjas. Speaking of which, oh, yeah, so weird angles when they're on the dock. There's, there's this big extended fight scene and the camera pans all the way back out. And it's just you see the stuntman, obviously, just running across the roof of this dock building. It was actually an impressive uh, shot. I, I yeah, liked it a lot. Yeah, like a chopper shot or something. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a helicopter shot. Pro- maybe of, with a little Nelly, who knows? Yeah, it's too much trouble. Too many foots. We can't lose any more foots. <laughs> <laughs> foots? Feet. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so this weird, and when Tanaka meets Bond, it's shot from below, looking up at them. So there's, there's different – certainly I notice these different angles and – stuff um they're trying things it's interesting it, it visually it's it's interesting to look at the other thing i was going to mention is the piranhas yes <laughs> i'm surprised you haven't mentioned that earlier Stu. Blow well I, I, I mentioned them very briefly uh in, in conjunction with the volcano lair because i think the oh, volcano right. lair is the is the hero of the of the piece but uh definitely you know killer piranhas is, is great as well and the little bridge across the pool yes. of piranhas. And you're like, dude, come on. This is a trap bridge. Please, please walk across this very <laughs> suspicious bridge with no railings over my pool of piranhas. Well, the, the German actress Karen Dorr, who did that scene, she didn't use a stunt woman for that scene. She dropped in herself. Oh, good on her. Which is good. I mean, I assume they didn't actually have piranhas in there, but uh, it's pretty well, good. I mean, you know, given the track record of these Bond films, maybe they did. Maybe they did. <laughs> For realism, we need the life. That's it. You need, to, you need to get bitten a couple of times just to really sell it. Flesh-eating piranhas. It's such a good, oh, and he's got his leg. He lowers, the, he lowers the side of beef down and they strip it. It's just like the bone they pull back up. It's yeah. great. Well, it's like a cartoon. That, that's his other henchman, Hans. Yes, and that, that's what I was saying before. Like, like Hans is just there, is also there. He's there to beat people up for Blofeld, I guess. Yeah, and Bond has to, you know, chuck him into the piranhas to get through at one yeah. point he's just another obstacle i mean he's no he's no odd job but but he's a he's a physical barrier to bond no doing. he's a big he's a big unit particularly standing next to donald pleasance you're like wow that yeah. guy is huge. He's a large man a large large man uh and then i was going to mention the ninjas oh the ninjas and the ninja training and school. I was going to say, are you going to talk about the ninja training school? Because <laughs> I squealed with delight. Oh, did you? When that, when that shit came on screen, Natalie, my God. <laughs> now, again, like, you know, like if, if, we're, if we're being totally fair, like a little bit of like Orientalism, like everyone, everyone in Japan is a ninja apparently. But hey, like I will never pass up a good ninja training school, which gave us another great uh, walk and talk. 
yeah. where ninjas are doing things in the background this time. And they're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah, they got the kendo, the kendo they, sticks. They got the kendo things. The they, they, but but like I love that like a bunch of them are just shooting guns at things. Like yeah. it's just ah, oh, it's yeah, so the good. Modern, he says that he says now let's look at the modern ninjas. Yeah. So they're well-rounded ninjas. They're still dressed like ninjas, though, which I, yeah. I love. But then the weird thing is, so M establishes at the start that they've got about three weeks until America launches another rocket. Russia will do one before that, but they need to sort this out. So they've got a, a three-week relaxed time frame. It's sort of a weird, like, it's not super imminent, but you better get it done pretty quickly because, like, it's, it's coming yeah. up. But Tanaka... Bond's like, let's get to this island. Let's see what's happening. He has the fight with the attack helicopters uh, with little Nelly. And he says, oh, she's had a hot reception. I'm coming home. They're like, no, don't come back. The Russians have launched their rocket. And I don't understand why he couldn't come back because of that. Yes, Um, no, neither do I. and And then you see him arrive at the ninja school. Yes. In a helicopter. And some days later, it's not like, where did he go? Now, look, even though it makes no sense... You just got to say, we see him arrive at the ninja school. So I think <laughs> the digression is worth it, Natalie. <laughs> I think it's definitely worth it. Before I forget, how does Bond, he leaves the submarine via... He gets a fired out of the <laughs> torpedo tube. <laughs> Torpedoed out of a submarine. With no scuba gear, like no... He's just got a mask and a wetsuit and fins. Mm. And he emerges on the shoreline. Sure. Like a remote shoreline. Well, maybe he was wearing one of those little... I mean, we don't see it, but maybe he was wearing one of those little rebreathers that uh, Q fashioned up. That aside, how far was the torpedo... Like, did the sub... That's a shallow bit of... Subs need a lot of water. Yeah, they, they need a lot of water to be submerged, like, I know. They don't kind of generally go into bays and things, do they? they they're mostly open water sort of things. Absolutely. He, he is definitely swum a fair way. Although, having said that, we did see... You see him emerge from the water. Like, his head breaks the surface of the waves, mm. and he's just on the coast of Japan. On the coast, and then he, like... And then they the don't actually to... say how he gets, like, a suit. Cut to the bright lights of Tokyo. Yeah. And so I guess we're just supposed to infer that, like, he used his spy powers to secure all that stuff. Maybe they had stuff waiting for him, I guess. It's not important. Yeah. Let's, let's keep going. <laughs> but they only told him, they only told him, here's the address for Henderson. Meet him mm. there. And Bond co- very coolly sets it on fire and, you know, flicks it away. They don't say, okay, Bond, you're going to need to go to this address first. We've got some suits there for you and a briefcase <laughs> and, you know, some accessories, some 5,000-pound shoes and a hat with a razor blade. <laughs> <laughs> razor edge so we've organized that or you know did they say just go to the hilton and everything will be there it's it's one of those lovely just transitions where you you just fill in the gap i do anyway fill in the gaps going bond trudging down the road in a wetsuit <laughs> in, in a wetsuit like like hiking you know um thunderball style like just getting into a car dripping wet <laughs> did he hitchhike into tokyo <laughs> from where the hell that bit of coastline was I'll like, make it I'm, worth your while. I'm trying to think. I'm going to have to bring up a, a Google map now and see how far. I, I, <laughs> despite all of my high school Japanese, I have It would yet, be improbably long. I have yet to go to Japan. Okay, so Tokyo is, is not far from the water. There's definitely water close by. But still, he looks like he fetches up <laughs> on a fairly remote section of... Anyway, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I must go to Japan. It does seem very cool. I wonder how much Japanese I'd remember. I do love the fact, oh, how good is it when Money Penny throws him the instant Japanese book 
And he says, you forget I took a first in Oriental languages at Cambridge. <laughs> yeah, I, then, I did love that they, yeah, he, he just he just throws it out there because Bond is always an expert at exactly what he needs what, to be for this particular yeah, mission. And, and then he says, Doma Arigato a lot, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, then, because you know for a fact that, like they said to Sean Connery, um, look, could you maybe learn some Japanese? No, I won't be do I won't be learning any Japanese, no. <laughs> I love the fact that um they they do speak Japanese. Like there's definitely uh, you know, they're not faking it, thank God. Um <laughs> <laughs> they're not doing a, a bad accent. Let's get back to ninja school though. Great scene. Ninjas. So good. But why does Bond have to train as a ninja? So they have this three week deadline and bond's like let's go to the island there's something happening there let me go check it out and tanaka's like no you need to train as a ninja sure (laughs) for at least four days and so even when aki dies and he says again i need to go to the island tanaka says you're almost ready and then they have the big wedding (laughs) i my personal headcanon is that like tanaka just like had an instant like connection with bond he became they became besties like he he's never invited anyone else to his house to be like uh, bathed by his slave girls and so <laughs> you know he he just really likes bond they've got a total bromance going he's like no i don't want you to go because then you'll have to leave it's the most train with uh, me as a ninja for a while the most heterosexual thing you can do is uh get naked with your best buddy and be massaged by slave girls <laughs> And and so yeah, Bond gets his makeup put on and then just trains as a ninja. He he's in the um the Japanese makeup for his training, isn't he? Yes. But it's that like a, it's like a private thing. It's not like a public ninja school. So I guess it's like like I don't know who that makeup is for. I don't know who the training is for. Like Bond's already relatively handy. I don't think he needs to learn how to like fight with a katana. And the thing is, he doesn't seem to really use it. No, again, yeah, it's it's not it, – it's there for our benefit because it's weird and, and foreign. I, I guess people hadn't really seen a lot of this stuff previously. Like, like you said, like, like this would be the first time that a lot of people would be experiencing Japanese culture, which is a terrifying sentence. I, well, look, the world was bigger then. No, no, but, but the idea that this is how they're introduced to it. <laughs> look, like, we all get introduced to things probably incorrectly. Sure, yes, that's very true. My introduction to learning about the American Civil War was Gone with the Wind. You know, probably, <laughs> like, what do you do? Like, that's Which is what, an incomplete text at best. It's what got me interested in the whole thing. And then you read more oh. about it and go, oh, I really love the characters of this story. But the historical context is a whole different thing. And it's written from a particular perspective. And But you can still enjoy, I think, these amazing characters like Scarlett O'Hara is just a fucking queen genius character and you can still enjoy that while going the broader historical setting of the film read some other sources (laughs) (laughs) anyway so um you learn about things in the way you learn about them and hopefully you find out more do you know what I mean so hopefully someone would go exactly what you mean like I do wonder if after this film came out people went oh, wow, martial arts looks really cool. And maybe there was an interest in people taking, you know, Sure, well, I mean, you know, like, like right. in the 70s, that was obviously a big thing, like people doing kung fu and, and, and Japanese martial arts and things. So, yeah, maybe. Yeah, just might have inspired people to learn a bit more and someone to go, well, actually, we don't all just have a massive walk and talk background. <laughs> <in our country." laughs> 
we're not all doing the super cool stuff every day. <laughs> it's like <laughs> sometimes there's just a lot of repetitive exercises to get a maneuver right, and then and then we have a fight. Once every month we have a fight. <laughs> yeah. I remember doing taekwondo briefly in primary school, and I remember even then when the the guys are like, the most important thing about a martial art is that you don't use it. <laughs> and as a kid that you makes know. no sense yeah it's it's like You're the like, whole thing is you know how to control your body and how to defend yourself and how to you know weak points on other people but you don't use it which absolutely great philosophy you know discipline and not being crazed with power sure. um, but as a tiny child you're like well why wouldn't i want to beat the fuck out of my brother <laughs> Of course, it wasn't very helpful because we were both doing the class, so he would have just beat me back. But right. yes. I split a board once. Yeah. Oh, very nice. I, yeah, I split it. I did the old uh, kick kickboard split. I was very happy with my kicks. Yeah, very nice. So let's start to wrap up this film. The only thing we haven't touched on is the Bond girls, which I know you like to, to sort of spotlight. So Aki is great. She's very cool. Um, Kissy is... Very fun where she tells Bond, oh, this is business, you'll sleep over there. And he's like a petulant kid going, oh. Kind of like real shitty about it. (laughs) It's like, well, obviously we were going to have sex, right? It's fabulous when at the end they're all alone in a life raft and and says, no one will ever find us. And then the submarine like. Yes. Excellent That's stuff. Fun. A better end than Thunderball for sure. Another another yeah. lifeboat at the end in the water ending, but yes, now, there tends uh, to be a lot of those. That we will we will be there again, where obviously yeah. like people are. The Bond ends up in some sort of escape craft. Yes, it wasn't the first time, won't be the last. So, and the other thing I wanted to mention was the German spy. I think Helga Brandt is her name, or she's she's called Number Eleven mostly. Yes, and she initially. Uh, I yeah, well, she's initially kind of set up as Osato's personal assistant, but she's actually number 11 inspector. And then it turns out, like, like, is the joke that she actually outranks him inspector? Is that... I can't remember if they say his number. I know he gets he gets gunned down as well at the end by Blofeld. It's like, I, I this is the price did. of failure. Yeah. I'll have to have and a look. He, if they did, there's a little strike for feminism if the, you know, in a, a, a culture where, oh, she's must be his assistant because yeah. it's... Yeah, I, I thought the subtext was that she actually outranks him in Spectre. Ah. Uh, but that, that could be me just putting my own spin on, on things. <laughs> just <laughs> fingers crossed, you. Yeah. Fingers hey. crossed. <laughs> but he definitely has the Osato definitely has the um his his little gadget was cool because Bond doesn't have apart from little Nelly he doesn't have a lot of gadgets in this film but uh, Osato has the desk that can has X-rays so can tell yeah, he's got the X-ray desk that's very yeah. cool but the lady Bond is captured he has that big fight at the docks and he manages to kill everyone and then someone clocks him on the back of the head as inevitably happens massive massive big fight Bond escapes <laughs> clock. You know, bring him to me. And he goes, gets taken to number 11 and she's all dressed sexily and he's tied up. And because he, he had a meeting with them pretending to be some sort of company that a wanted company their, head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wanted chemicals. And then it's like she seduces herself. Yeah, it's very strange. It's a very strange she's, thing. I, I don't get her motivation. I, that line, the things I do for England. Yeah. And so he bones her. And then they're in a helicopter and she goes, right, I've got to go, and then jumps out. So it's like her job was to kill him, I think, but instead she 
lets herself be seduced by him or kind of just maybe she sleeps with him and the whole point is to get him in the chopper so she can elaborately jump out of the chopper. But she had him tied up. She could have just killed him. You know what I mean? Like, Like it's just one of those things where he's doing the thing where he's pretending to still be the the business guy and, yeah. but she she's a member of spectre she knows that or maybe she doesn't because they they realize later on that he's bond that's right yeah so maybe she actually does think that he is a british businessman and who is after like corporate espionage rather than like uh, trying to stop spectre's evil plans but that's a lot to do for yes. corporate espionage yeah, i know i know exactly <laughs> and then and then they they say cuz it's osado who says kill him but you'd think that maybe he did that because he knows he's got more to him than a chemical um export but this is, this is business one of the only guy? times in the, but yeah exactly but this is one of the only times in the movie where the fact that bond is officially dead comes into play because it seems like both of them maybe suspected that he was Bond. But they don't, but, because at the end, they're really surprised. They're like, his death was in the newspapers. It must yeah, be it doesn't real. make sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't uh, make it's sense. It's another thing that's in there it's, for the benefit of us, the audience. It's it's a way to get her, you know, kit off. So Bond gets to do the things I do for England. And then when he turns up at the ninja school, <laughs> Tanaka says, oh, how did you get on with the uh, sexy number 11 or whatever and, like, oh, it's fine. and Aki's like oh he wouldn't dare have sex with her she's ugly Ooh, yes, or whatever and he's like I am I am weirdly like completely unutterly devoted to Bond now yeah, that's the other thing she's <laughs> all kind of toying with him initially and then once Bond is getting his massage Aki sli- sl- slips in tells the masseuse to leave quietly yeah. And then she starts to massage him, and then he turns around and goes, "Oh, Aki!" And then they make out. Like it's okay. It's it's weird. It's not like like this was inevitable. Of course, we're doing this. But you know how I was saying w- women are just supposed to go, "Ooh, Bond." And yeah, yeah. And and, and in, in this way, this film sort of course corrects from the last one where Bond is a sex pest. <laughs> um, but in this one, it almost overcorrects and has every female character basically throw themselves at him. Well, Kissy doesn't. They just kind of make out and then, you know, it's implied that they would have well, had sex. That they absolutely yeah. would have boned down if if stuff hadn't have happened when it did. Yeah, if the submarine hadn't turned up. But, yeah, the um the way that she is all kind of hostile and then she's just like, ah, oh, Bonsan, you know, it's me. And they make out and they're kind of in love. But then she dies and he's then like. Then she and dies and he moves on. It's <laughs> which, just. He's very and Bond, but it's like Jesus. But that's 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 Roald Dahl bringing that stuff in. Like, that's yeah. his scripting. Um, Absolutely. That's what Roald Dahl's bringing to the table. Okay. So, yes, love scenes and the women, it, it just does not a lot of sense happening there. They're, kind of, and they're I, kind of not a figure of the movie in the same way that other Bond girls are. That they, they don't make as big an impact on the movie. There's an innocence. They're not played as super sexual. Like Helga Brandt, when she gets it on with Bond and she's got the sexy sequin dress and no underwear on and she sits on Bond's lap and there might have been reasons in the production or in the filming that they it was a bit harder to get across or not wanting to tell someone, go be sexy, and it was there's, it's more innocent. Yeah, maybe, exactly, yeah. Maybe that's how they were trying to frame it out of a respect thing or out of a misguided uh, Japanese women wouldn't be sexual mm. because – they'd be more innocent and not not like seductive. 
or worldly. Yes. Which obviously, <laughs> like, is very reductive and sort of patronising, but... But yes, I think that that might be that might be their thought process. I don't know. Well, it's that weird thing, isn't it, of that that slight white knighting kind of thing of oh, you're yes, a, quite literally in this case. Yeah, uh, we need to wrap up. We we do. <laughs> and talk about our list and where we place this film on our so far four film extending now to five film list. Yes. Do you want Do you want to place yours first? <sighs> This is tough. tough. I actually found this really tough because like you, there are awesome elements to this film. There's a lot of really fun stuff in this movie. Really, really fun stuff. Like that freaking rocket opening, eating the other (laughs) rockets is just amazing. The music, the theme song is great. The Bond girls are great. Blofeld is okay. Not as good as I remember, weirdly enough. Mm. But the volcano set, is great. I just think even putting aside the stuff, turning Japanese stuff, yes, and the sexism, which was a big like, ugh, you know, drew me out a lot. Sure. I just think the plot and the story is so nonsensical in parts mm, that absolutely. I think for those reasons, I'd have to put it down under Thunderball. Oh wow, okay. Wow, you think, think this is to... worse than Thunderball? I think so. I think Jesus. But again, remember I'm saying part of my thing is the emotional attachment and so I'm really emotionally attached to a lot of the special effects in this one, but I think that the story of Thunderball is better. It's longer, it needed an edit, but it's more cohesive and we didn't have this chat last week where we're like, this bit didn't make sense, this, you know, plot-wise. No, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> say what you want about Thunderball, it has a very streamlined plot. you got, you got to just... make room for those extended underwater sequences. <laughs> That's right. But it, it gets places. I just don't know that I could put this one above it. But also, it's kind of not satisfactory because you don't really see anything happening with Blofeld. Like, you don't – he and Bond don't really have a confrontation once Bond kind of escapes. He goes Blofeld. to shoot him and then someone else throws a shuriken at him and then yeah. he runs away. And this is Blofeld who – I suppose Bond doesn't really know him. There's, but he's been his shadowy Moriarty throughout all of these films. Yeah, and it, it just didn't get pushed enough, I think. Just on the rewatch, again, I, I feel like before I watched it again, I probably would have put it higher than Thunderball because of those elements I remember, and like the ninja school and the walk and talk and the – but – as you say, with then the extended Japanese wedding, which mm. kind of takes you out of it, I think I have to put it down below Thunderball. Okay, okay. I put it just above Thunderball for exactly the reasons you were you were saying. <laughs> so it's so it's Thunderball is a is a very nice simple plot. Like you don't have any trouble understanding what's going on or what the stakes are in that respect. But that movie is so long, Natalie. It's so long. Uh, it's so really? poorly paced. I, you didn't mention that at all. It's, it, it is it is 24 hours long. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it holds the world record for the length of film that uh, that it is. It's so long. And it's <laughs> the just so... The Lord of so... the Rings trilogy flew by. <laughs> yes, that's okay. right. The Lord of the Rings trilogy came and went several times in the time it took me to watch Thunderball. Uh, it just is so poorly paced that I can't in good conscience put, and it's got things in it like, you know, like it's got like killer sharks and a, and a, a transforming speedboat. boat and things like yeah. a speedboat. But the cool things in You Only Live Twice are so much cooler than the cool things in Thunderball. I'm really, 
intrigued because you have just seen this film for the first time and I'm interested in how that has affected like because well, that's true but seen... i mean like it, it had been it had been years since i'd seen thunderball true but i you're having this is just me theorizing like mm. seeing this film for the first time would i have had a similar react because i did i did struggle with that placement because i was thinking going well it's either got to go above or below thunderball that's where it sits and i really wrestled with it and really hadn't even made a decision until just now when we talked about it and it kind of crystallized in my head that no i think i have to put it underneath because of just the jarring elements to me that don't make sense and yeah sure and don't get me wrong in my placement i am basically ignoring the turning japanese stuff uh, <laughs> I, I am largely ignoring that theoretically this should be at the bottom of every list but the the, the fun stuff in it i personally can overlook that, yeah. that small segment of the film which is deeply problematic and um <laughs> just sort of enjoy spaceships that eat other spaceships and a, and a volcano layer like i love a good <laughs> volcano layer you can't go past it <laughs> Yeah, if we were doing like a ranking purely based on spectacle, this would probably be at number one, you Absolutely. know, purely based on the, the, the crazy bondness of it. Yeah. But in terms of trying to look at it critically as a film. Oh, it's a mess. It's a, like plot wise, it's a mess. Yeah. The turning Japanese stuff does definitely cost it in the rankings. Like, for example, like, you know, you think I have Dr. No and From Russia With Love higher than this movie. Yeah. And they are both better films, like easily better films. Yeah. But this is just so fun. Like, I can't possibly yeah. put it below Thunderball. And that's sort of the same thing that I had with From Russia With Love and Dr. No, you know, where I was like, I just have to keep Dr. No that bit higher because of how fun for me it is. Sure, yeah. Um, those emotional links to it feed into the ranking. And I'll, I'll be really keen to see how we go when we get into some of the particularly silly Roger Moore films. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> to see how they go because you know the rewatch has shown that I thought sort of the Connery era was kind of flawless and the Roger Moore is where <laughs> it's a bit crazy and it's like no it's not nope. that at all like you can't make a general assumption that oh Roger Moore ones are a bit crap and Sean Connery's are all great because like nope the, the last two yeah. proper Sean Connery's were real patchy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and and of course this is the last film that he did last film Sure, uh, yeah, yeah. He didn't even particularly want to do this one, I think, but they kind of paid him more money and convinced him and then went, look, we'll look for a replacement. So they started the recruitment procedure, I think, while this was filming, looking ahead to post-Connery. Some crit criticisms that I read, brief brief little reviews of the film, was that Connery seemed to be not that great, like not that engaged with the part. They sort of seemed to think <laughs> that he was a bit tired or... I mean, in a way, I, I, I didn't pick up on that. He seemed, yeah, I mean, like, was... he seemed like Bond. He seemed like he was James Bond, except when yeah. he was dressed as a Japanese man. <laughs> Maybe that's and what they were that. picking up on. I'm not sure. And with that. He seems different this time. My ranking is You Only Live Twice at the bottom of my list of five. Stu's is at number four on the list of five. And so we turn our attention now to On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Next yes. week. Another film that, strangely, I don't think I've seen. Oh. I'm, I'm very well aware of several of the plot elements, which I think is going to hurt my, my rewatch, but I don't think I've seen the full movie. I, I've seen bits of it, I think, but I've never seen the full thing. I have seen the full thing, but it's so long ago, I've kind of forgotten. I'll keep my fresh eyes out, too. Very With cool. that, thank you for joining us. Do Hit us up on facebook.com slash Natalie's Throne. My Patreon is running, patreon.com slash girlclumsy. And, of course, I'm at girlclumsy on Twitter. Stu is Disco Stu, the original and the best. And until next week, 
I'm Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken. Not stirred. Yes! <laughs> and sound the music out. It's so lullaby. That's the word for it. A lullaby. It's a lullaby. Enjoy. We'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>